Hey, everybody. It is Wednesday, February 28th, February 29th Eve. Jill, we only get those <laughs> once every four years. We'll talk about it more tomorrow. I'm Mosh Wanunu, and this is the Mo News Podcast. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read between the lines, read all the news. We do all of that, typically. Are you trying to mess with me here? I feel like you're... you're <laughs> <laughs> It's a short month, Jill. So, you know, things get a bit crazy at the end here. I guess you want to keep me and our listeners on our toes here. Yeah, you guys don't want to get bored with the beginning. (laughs) We should make you listen to the whole thing. You never know what's coming up. By the way, once you get done with this here podcast, your daily podcast, if you want a bit more specifically on the state of the media, the state of mode news, and frankly, my take on what's happening out there, uh, taped another podcast with a journalist named Brian Morrissey. He has the Rebooting podcast. That is out today. So definitely check that out, uh, especially I know some of you are huge media nerds and are just curious about the state of the news media in general. So we have a deep dive, a deep discussion on what we're trying to do to differentiate ourselves and what's happening out there. So after this podcast, check out the Rebooting podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your pods. And Moshe, as you mentioned in our little pre-talk before we started the podcast, you let her rip. You didn't really hold back. (laughs) I've had it uh, (laughs) with the media. So uh, we talked about various biases out there and how the media screws things up, uh, especially when it comes to coverage of topics like immigration uh, and other issues and how both an elitism bias and liberal bias tend to impact coverage. So it's not something you always get on the Insta feed or frankly on this podcast, but that's how I was feeling when we taped that pod. Uh, Jill, I should also note, to continue the pistachio pistachio theme of the week, the good folks at Wonderful Pistachios reached out to us. So I don't know that they'll be in today, but my understanding is we got some pistachios coming in the mail. Yes, thank you to everybody at Wonderful. I cannot wait to have them. I am a huge pistachio fan, however you want to pronounce it. If you work for any food industry, specifically snack foods, uh, let us know. Send them over. <laughs> no, but more importantly, let us know when your big day is. You know, like I'll Google and like it's like National Pancake Day, National Potato Chip Day. It's hard to track all of them. So please uh, send us a note with when in the calendar your day shows up because we want to make sure to let all of you know when those big days are coming and where you could get the discounts or free whatever on the day of their choice. You know, every day, Jill, is like a devoted day for something out there. Like I just Googled today, it's National Tooth Fairy Day today. I don't know what that's about. I don't know what the tooth fairy industry, but apparently the tooth fairies, make-believe tooth fairies, they also have a day. Inflation has been hitting the tooth fairy industry quite hard, Mosh. (laughs) (laughs) How much you get for a tooth now? (laughs) It is actually a thing. I've covered this when I was at CBS and I used to do Money Watch. It was one of the stories we used to do is like, what is the going rate for a tooth these days? The tooth fairy index. Yeah. And it's a lot more than when we were kids. Jill, I just did a quick Google here. It appears it's about $6 (laughs) average based on surveys right now. My daughter's going to be very disappointed. I was going to say, sorry if you're in a car ride right now with your kids and they're finding out that you're not paying them at least $6 per tooth. Just saying it's an average. It's or average. that you're the tooth fairy. Kids, the tooth fairy is real. It's not mom and dad. Right. So if they're not paying you $6, <laughs> take it up with the tooth fairy. All right. Let's get to some news here. The Michigan primary results are in and what they tell us about how close we are to the general election. Shutdown showdown. The government has until Saturday to avert a shutdown, but there is some optimism. An investigation into how lead tainted applesauce got through gaps in the U.S. food safety system. 
The U.S. Army is downsizing what that means. Bye-bye, Apple's iCar. We hardly knew ya. Apple cancels work on its electric car. A sign of the times, Macy's is closing more than 100 stores and opening some new Bloomingdale's and Blue Mercury locations. Yeah, we'll tell you what you, the consumer, has been telling Macy's and the changes they're about to make to their sales floor. Which European city is charging an entry fee as a way to fight overcrowdedness? And the unexpected reason that MLB players don't like their new uniforms. Oh, this is a good one. And Moshe is on the day in history. Lie, 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 lie. Lie, 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 Joe, can you name that tune? Moshe, I can name that tune and the singer. So I look forward to hearing what happened on this day in relation to it. For now, though, let's get to some news. Okay, let's start with presidential politics and the Michigan primary in a state that will likely play a key role in deciding who will be the next president of the United States. Former President Trump continued his sweep of all GOP primaries and President Biden easily won the Democratic primary, which means we are getting closer to a general election rematch. But for Biden, this wasn't just about winning. He did get more than 80 percent of the vote on his side. But about 15 percent of the Democrats who voted, one in six, voted uncommitted. This was part of an organized campaign effort from some progressives and Arab American Democrats to send a message to Biden that they are angry about his support of Israel's war in Gaza. We should note Biden only won Michigan by about 150,000 votes in the 2020 general election. The mayor of Dearborn, Abdullah Hamoud, who is the first Arab American mayor of a majority Arab American city, saying his community is, quote, not sizable enough to make a candidate win, but, quote, sizable enough to make a candidate lose. He told that to NPR. It isn't clear, though, Moshe, whether the Democrats who voted uncommitted in the primary yesterday are going to sit out the general election, vote for Donald Trump, or eventually come back and vote for Joe Biden. Yeah, we should note, by the way, this is not a new thing, voting uncommitted. This has been an option for a number of years. It allows members of both parties to say, I'm just not into any of the candidates. Uh, Some history here, typically about 20,000 Democrats in recent primaries, the last few cycles, have voted uncommitted, though the number was much more significant last night. And this is a movement aimed at sending a message to Biden saying, change your policies or face repercussions. Now, notably, Trump is also very pro-Israel. By the way, so is independent candidate RFK Jr. And so it's unclear who these folks would turn to. And frankly, the ramifications of another Trump presidency, given their other policy goals. I mean, you're talking about some pretty progressive people here uh, that would be pretty concerned about Trump's policies. But for them, it's about sending a message, even if it means Biden loses in November. Again, sort of biting off your nose despite your face in some cases. That said, they are trying to be heard here. And it has worked. The White House has sent a number of representatives to Michigan. Uh, They've had meetings at the White House with a number of Arab American and Muslim leaders there from Michigan. So we'll see if this is just sort of a one-off thing as we sit here in February and the war is still ongoing and what it means in the fall. Again, you're talking about some people who were always Bernie Sanders people in 2016 and 2020. So it's unclear specifically uh, what this will mean. But as you noted, Michigan, one of the eight states basically that's competitive in a general election. You know, we have 50 states in this country, but really only eight or nine matter that are competitive in November, Michigan being one of them. So we're going to watch this closely and see how what's happening abroad 
impacts things here at home. And it's not just the Middle East, by the way, for many of these progressives, especially younger voters, you saw uh, some disenchantment, some some uh, high uncommitted numbers on the Michigan University campuses, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, in Lansing, at Michigan State, whether these young voters are just, you know, are not really into Joe Biden. Again, we'll see what November brings and what a fall campaign brings here. So that's the Democratic side. Notably, and not a big surprise on the Republican side, a Trump beat Nikki Haley again, yet another state here. Though notably, numbers here are more significant than recent states. Uh, he beat her by a two-to-one margin. She's in the low 30% as we record this uh, late on Tuesday night. That's not as even as well as she did in New Hampshire. Uh, that's below her performance in South Carolina. So you don't see much momentum here from Nikki Haley. We've been telling you for more than a month now, it's unclear what her strategy is. And that was reinforced by Michigan's results last night, that she's committed to staying in this race, but she still hasn't beat him in a single state. Uh, and it doesn't look very good for her next week as we approach Super Tuesday, Super Tuesday being a date where more than a dozen states vote, a third of the Republican delegates will be handed out. Many are winner take all. And in all the polling in all the states right now, Trump is beating her. Her issue, as we told you, not enough Republicans like her, and she's running to be the Republican nominee. Her major support, a group of disenchanted Republicans who don't like Trump, independents, and Democrats who are crossing over. Now, she's been making the argument that'll work in a general. Republicans who make up the majority of the Republican primary electorate are like, no, we want to go with the uh, first guy. We want him back. So uh, we'll see what happens here, whether she will continue through Super Tuesday, but no big surprises, I think, Jill, last night. Moshe, as we were jumping on right before we were recording, uh, you had commented, I mean, snooze fest here, right? I mean, in it, <laughs> like this is the most boring primary in in uh, that I can remember. Jill, we haven't seen this since the Benjamin Harris Grover Cleveland race of 1872. <laughs> and by that, I mean, that was the last time we had a former president going up against a current president. Remember, Grover Cleveland was our 22nd and 24th president because he successfully pulls off the win-lose-win scenario that Trump is now trying. But I'm like a fan of covering politics and interesting races. And this is the lamest primary of my lifetime. (laughs) And not only that, we're just one step closer to a, a general election with two candidates that most people, that most Americans say that they're just not excited about. Most Americans do not want a rematch of of President Biden and former President Trump. And it looks like that's exactly what we're getting. By the way, I should correct myself. It's the repeat of 1892, not 1872. You know, Grover and Benjamin Harris rematch. (laughs) I knew I was off there in the late 19th century. But you know what's interesting? People say like, wait a second, the majority of us don't want this election and it's happening anyway. Why? Well, the people making decisions in the Republican Party, Republican voters, do want Donald Trump again. And for Democrats who are disenchanted with Joe Biden, that appears to be about 10 to 15% of the party. The majority of Democrats, even if they don't love him, don't hate him so much that they want to replace him, or at least don't like the options being presented to them as alternatives. So that's why we find ourselves in the predicament we are in. And so the rematch, Apollo Rocky 2, will be happening this fall. Staying with politics here, now to the government shutdown watch part what is this most like part a <laughs> hundred? Well, a uh, hundred overall this go around. I think this is our fourth near shutdown in just the past six months, Jill. So Democratic and Republican congressional leaders, they say they are optimistic that they will avert a government shutdown that's set to start this weekend. And it follows a White House meeting hosted by President Biden in which lawmakers also stepped up pressure on Speaker Mike Johnson to allow a vote on Ukraine aid to go forward. 
The split Congress has until Saturday, just after midnight, to fund the Departments of Veterans Affairs, Transportation, Agriculture, Energy, and several other agencies that have been operating on temporary budget extensions since September 30th. The funding for the rest of the federal government expires after March 8th. Johnson, who is the Republican House Speaker, reportedly made it clear that he wants to avoid a government shutdown. This was during a private Tuesday meeting with President Biden and other congressional leaders. At least this is according to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Of course, he is a Democrat. The main holdup has been in the Republican-led House, where Johnson is managing a rowdy House GOP conference that has taken a really hard line on deficits and is also increasingly skeptical of foreign aid, especially aid for Ukraine. The Democratic-controlled Senate has been ready for months to move forward with the budget. Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell telling reporters at the Capitol that the meeting focused mainly on keeping the government open. He said, quote, which I think we can all agree on. And Schumer said he does not think that the current differences are insurmountable. Yeah, so still a split here, but some positive language coming out of that White House meeting on Tuesday. Schumer believes there is another short-term spending patch to keep the government open. This is what they've done a few times now uh, to give them more time for a full year bill. The funny thing is, Jill, we're about six months into the fiscal year and we don't have a full year bill yet because all these short-term bills. The thing with Johnson, he's in a very difficult spot with his party. Remember, he was sort of the mistaken Speaker of the House after McCarthy was pushed out. Took them a while to get to him. And he has a very hardcore group of right-wing conservatives who don't mind shutting down the government here. They want to see even more spending cuts. But Johnson is under pressure, not only from Democrats, not only from the White House, but from his fellow Republicans in the Senate to say, dude, keep the government open. This is not a good look in an election year. So he must now sell a deal to his House conference of Republicans. Now, the thing is, it's actually not that complicated. They can easily pass this through the House. But what it does mean is Johnson has to put it on the floor and the majority of votes will come from Democrats. So he'll be seen as working with Democrats, which to the right wingers is not okay, and is the same issue that brought down his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy. Remember, he worked with Democrats to keep something open. And they said, oh, no. And a group of them joined by all the Democrats, uh, eventually pushed him out as speaker. So Johnson is very much threatening his continued role as speaker here every time he potentially works with Democrats. And then there is Ukraine, as you mentioned. There is the $95 billion aid package that includes Ukraine, includes Taiwan, includes humanitarian aid to the Palestinians, includes military aid to the Israelis. A lot of pressure on Johnson to get that through. The vast majority of the Senate approves it, and the majority of the House approves it but not the vast majority of Republicans in the House. And again, that's the issue. It can pass the House, but it would get a lot of votes from Democrats. So Johnson, again, under pressure on Ukraine. Schumer describing the meeting in the uh, White House today as one of the most intense he's ever had in the Oval Office. Schumer says he told Speaker Johnson he would regret it for the rest of his life if he blocked assistance to Ukraine here. A lot of pressure here from Chuck Schumer, who incidentally has just returned from Ukraine, Ukraine feeling a lot of pressure, a lot of concern that when the aid uh, has dried up from the U.S., that they're going to have a very difficult time holding off the Russians. Jill, have you ever been told you got to do something or you'll regret it for the rest of your life? <laughs> it's so it's so dramatic, <laughs> Chuck Schumer. <laughs> Schumer, what do you got on Johnson? Like, do they even know each other? I mean, I, I feel like they've probably met a few times at this point. Listen, Schumer runs the Senate right now. Johnson <laughs> runs the House. 
Uh, they have to work together on certain things. So when you hear Chuck Schumer, who runs the other body, say you're going to regret it for the rest of your life if you don't do this, <laughs> uh, maybe you take that you take that seriously. Another reason Mike Johnson is just like, why did I take this? Like, why did I run for this? Who wants this? Yeah. It is the most thankless position, I think, in government. Yeah. I mean, John Boehner would tell him that. Paul Ryan would tell him that. <laughs> Kevin McCarthy would tell him that. You go back to the last few speakers, and they're like, how is it running that Republican caucus with that like dozen or so extreme right Republicans who make your life hell and don't care about legislating? They just care about kind of pushing their agenda. And so Johnson's inherited them. And he was just kind of a quiet Republican congressman from Louisiana. And now he has to manage this, get yelled at by uh, Chuck Schumer in the White House. Uh, and we'll see how it goes. Uh, you know, Johnson is learning on the fly here. His staff is learning on the fly. And so he's had a difficult go at it. Uh, and there are certainly a lot of critics. This is difficult on a good day to manage such a thin majority, with such a difficult caucus. And Johnson's learning how to do this literally day by day. All right, we have a lot more news to get to, including the speed read. But I want to begin with our sponsor this week, Good Shop. You might have heard of Good Shop. That is Chop, C-H-O-P. They offer fully customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered to your door. We've talked about them on this podcast before. Vacuum-sealed, frozen at peak freshness. And this includes more than 70 high-quality cuts, 100% grass-fed ribeyes, prime filet mignon. They also do sustainable and wild-caught seafood, salmon, cod, scallops, shrimps, and more. We cooked the salmon here Sunday night. It was excellent. And when I say we, Jill, I mean Alex, <laughs> my wife, was an incredible <laughs> cook. Uh, but the salmon was excellent. And unlike many other companies, Good Shop sources its meat and seafood exclusively from American farms and fisheries. And so it also lets you support local family farms and independent ranchers here in the U.S. And it doesn't cost a fortune. The calculation here, the average price of a meal via Good Shop $3.74. They pride themselves on identifying meat that has no antibiotics, no added hormones, no artificial ingredients, and they do offer a 100% money-back guarantee if you don't love what you're getting from Good Shop. So go to goodchop.com, that is G-O-O-D, good, chop, C-H-O-P.com, slash monews120, and use the code monews120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. Again, the code is monews120 over at goodchop.com slash monews120 for $120 off. All right, as we head into warmer weather across much of the U.S. in the coming months, one way to stay cool and continue to get a good night's sleep is by checking out Bull & Branch Bedding and Sheets. They're a brand that we love here at Monews. We only endorse products that we love. And we've been using Bull & Branch for more than two years now in our home. The sheets have been great, soft, breathable fabric that works for both cold and warm weather. We noticed the quality immediately and have gotten a few different sets in our house. I know Jill has as well. They're made with 100% organic cotton, completely free from toxins. I know that is very important to a number of you. And it's not just sheets. They have blankets, duvets, pillows, a whole variety of products to ensure you get a good night's sleep. And right now, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. Go check them out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Again, they get softer with every wash. So the deal right now is 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MONEWS for 15% off. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. 
time now for the speed read, starting with this story from the New York Times, an investigation into dysfunction and just the lack of resources at the FDA and what it has meant for food safety. Spoiler alert, it ain't good. The crisis with cinnamon flavored applesauce pouches sold in grocery and dollar stores last year that poisoned hundreds of American children with extremely high doses of lead was partially due to a lack of oversight and multiple gaps in food testing that's supposed to be headed by the FDA. Children in 44 states ate the tainted applesauce, some of which contained lead that was at extraordinarily high levels. Hundreds of pages of documents obtained by the New York Times and the nonprofit health newsroom, The Examination, show that the tainted applesauce sailed through a series of checkpoints in a food safety system that is meant to protect American consumers. It found that because of a lack of sufficient resources and systems in place, the FDA has not been rigorously testing the food products shipped into the United States, leading to this applesauce-led crisis. The cinnamon originated in Sri Lanka and was shipped to Ecuador, where it was ground into a powder. And it was probably there, the FDA has said, that the cinnamon was likely contaminated with lead chromate. It is a powder that is sometimes illegally used to tint or bulk up spices. Yeah, so you're watching the food chain here because then the ground cinnamon was then sold, bagged, and then sold again to a company called Astro Food, which then blended it into applesauce and shipped the pouches to the U.S. and then sold under a brand called Wanabana and several generic store labels. So follow us here. Sri Lanka, Ecuador, ground up, sold, sold again, then put in pouches then brought to the U.S. So you can see that the supply chain here is extensive, and that's just for these specific pouches. And that's where the FDA says, we don't have enough resources uh, to be able to track all of this. In fact, American inspectors had not visited Food, one link in that supply chain, in five years, according to records found here by the New York Times. An FDA official says companies have the responsibility to take steps to assure the products they manufacture are not contaminated with unsafe levels of heavy metals. And there you have it, the big issue here. A lot of the responsibility here is on the companies themselves because the FDA is just not capable uh, and doesn't have the resources, they say, to inspect all parts of the supply chain all around the world at all brands. So they say the FDA has the job to hold the industry compliant with rules, especially those who evade responsibility. But it's up to the companies here to really be testing their own product. Now, the FDA does have the power to test food that arrives at the border, but there is no indication that anyone tested the applesauce when it arrived at ports in Miami and in Baltimore. Jill, every time I think about the ports in Baltimore, I'm thinking about The Wire, season (laughs) two, was it? I thought that the ports was a later season. I thought the ports was season five. Oh, that far? Okay, anyway, so there's a season of The Wire that takes place at the Baltimore ports, but that's much more to do with other stuff, more illegal stuff arriving through the ports. Nonetheless... The big issue the newspapers here discover is that inspectors are conducting about half as many tests at ports of entry that they did a decade ago. The FDA says it now plans to analyze the incident, whether it needs new powers from Congress. Uh, There was a bill signed into law by President Obama back in 2011 that gave the FDA more powers to recall food, trace produce, reject food, etc. But the FDA says it's still figuring it out more than a decade later on how to implement those policies. One thing that has happened since then The grocery and food industry lobby have been fighting to loosen standards when it comes to inspection here. So across the board here, you have major issues. One professor 
who directs an institute at Michigan State, actually, that uh, watches this stuff. The Food Laws and Regulations Institute over there says, it's amazing in a bad sense what a catastrophic failure this is. The food supply regulatory system is effectively based on an honor system here. So uh, you got to trust your brand. The brand has to trust the uh, suppliers. The suppliers have to trust the growers. The grocery stores that eventually sell it have to trust all of the above. And the FDA, while they're doing oversight here, there's also trust there. And so now reason for a lack of trust, Jill, at least based on what we're discovering about this specific instance. What also struck me is that this is just applesauce. I mean, shouldn't it basically just be applesauce pouches? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so so what chance do we have when it's actually more complicated foods? I mean, why why is this even the process when we talk about what is in our food? Because it's all about finding cheap supplies globally in order to make a profit, right? And so this is where we're at. And by the way, some of these heavy metals exist in the soils where the original fruits, vegetables, products are grown. There's a lot there. And that's where, you know, clearly here, there needs to be more power given to the FDA, more resources, and there needs to be some accountability for these companies. So they shore up their systems and ensure that what we're eating is good to go and healthy, especially the stuff they're marketing for kids. From the Associated Press, the U.S. Army is slashing the size of its force by about 24,000 or almost 5 percent and restructuring to be better able to fight the next major war. It comes as the Army struggles with recruiting shortfalls that made it impossible to bring in enough soldiers to fill all the jobs. The cuts will mainly be in already empty posts, not actual soldiers, including in jobs related to counterinsurgency that swelled during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars but are not needed as much today. About 3,000 of the cuts would come from Army Special Operations Forces. At the same time, however, the plan will add about 7,500 troops in other critical missions, including air defense and counter-drone units, and task forces around the world with enhanced cyber intelligence and long-range strike capabilities. So the thing about the Army is, Jill, it was first founded in 1775, a year before we declared independence here in the U.S. So It's had to go through a number of evolutions over time, especially as technology has changed, especially as the enemy has changed. The big issue, though, in recent years, in the past decade, is they have not met enlistment goals going back a decade now, 2014. It's been a huge issue. So that's something to bear in mind here as you're looking at the restructuring in the military. Right now, the army is just under 500,000, about 494,000 soldiers. That's what it's structured to be. The active duty numbers at 445,000. This new refined army will be about 470,000 soldiers. So this comes after 20 years now, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, the new counterinsurgency battles against groups like Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIS, and now a focus on the threat of China, the threat of Russia, the threat of Iran. So they need to continue to adapt the military and create positions here that they think will be important to face uh, future enemies. And right now, the war in Ukraine especially has shown a greater emphasis on air defense needs, high-tech capabilities, as well as uh, ways to counter airborne and sea-based drones. So uh, they're going to try to adapt accordingly. All right, say goodbye to the iCar. This from Bloomberg. Apple is canceling a decade-long effort to build an electric car, abandoning one of the most ambitious projects in the history of the company. Apple made this disclosure internally on Tuesday, surprising the nearly 2,000 employees working on the project. This is according to people familiar with the matter. They asked not to be identified because this announcement has not been made public. 
The chief operating officer, Jeff Williams, and Kevin Lynch, vice president in charge of the effort, telling staffers that the project will begin winding down and that many employees on the team working on the car, which is known as Special Projects Group or SPG, will be shifted to the Artificial Intelligence Division. Those employees will focus on generative AI projects, an increasingly key priority for the company. The Apple Car team also has several hundred hardware engineers and car designers. It is possible that they'll be able to apply for jobs on other Apple teams. But Mosh, imagine that just coming into work like any other day, going to work on the Apple car and them saying, uh, sorry, it's not going to happen. Yeah, a decade here trying to develop this car, though many people internally say that it lacked a vision as to what it was going to be. Some folks skeptical that Tim Cook can really conceive of and launch something completely from scratch on his own as the CEO. The only uh, new things they've really launched, the iWatch and the Vision Pro, both got started under Steve Jobs, the previous leader. There was also the departure of Johnny Ive. And building a car from scratch for a company that you know is really focused on these smaller devices uh, is quite an undertaking. And so this has been a multi-billion dollar effort. They started work on this in 2014. There were various uh, visions over time and videos put out. They'd imagined that the price of the iCar would be $100,000. It would be a luxury vehicle. But alas, it does not appear this iCar is going to happen. There's been inflation, of course. So who knows how much that iCar would have eventually gone for, uh, especially if, the, if your phone or your computer are always going for a couple thousand. A car, I imagine, would have been up there in the six figures. Uh, it also comes as the electric auto market, the EV market, uh, has suffered some issues of late. There's been pullback on investments. A lot of focus from the Teslas and other brands of the world on hybrids instead of fully battery-powered cars here. So no iCar, Jill. I know you were saving up for one. <laughs> By the way, it, it was not actually called the iCar. That's just sort of like <laughs> what we decided to call it. They didn't even like, get there. Yeah. They didn't even get there. <laughs> Okay, from Fox Business, Macy's is planning to close about 150 of its locations over the next three years, a strategy shift that leans more heavily on its luxury Bloomingdale's and Blue Mercury chains. Macy's will be down to 350 stores once all of the planned closures occur. In turn, the company is going to add about 45 Bloomingdale's and Blue Mercury locations. The new CEO, Tony Springs, says... A bold new chapter serves as a strong call to action. It challenges the status quo to create a more modern Macy's. We are making the necessary moves to reinvigorate relationships with our customers through improved shopping experiences, relevant assortments, and compelling value. I like when stores always announce major closures and they start the uh, press release by saying, we have a bold new chapter coming your way. Obviously, not for many of those employees who were working in those stores. Jill, just in the last few years, a couple of years ago, there were 870 stores overall, 643 Macy's locations. So you've almost cut it in half in just a matter of five years here. Obviously, COVID and those closures were an issue as well. And just the larger issue retail, big box retail is facing from online sales and the changing habits by consumers. So now they look to be leaner and meaner here. They also have done a number of surveys, hence the expansion of the Bloomingdale's and Blue Mercury brands here. The new CEO spent the last year conducting research among 60,000 consumers focused on the Macy's brand. The shoppers say they want a couple things. One, a less cluttered shop floor. Two, more salespeople. So they say with uh, this recalibration, they will be adding sales associates in the fitting rooms, the shoe department, stepping up visual displays here. And so this is a bit of what they've gotten. So they're saying to you, the consumer, they're going to give you 
what you want. And it comes as, uh, you know, they continue to recalibrate here, the stores across the country. And frankly, they're not alone here, right? The targets, the Nordstrom's, the Kohl's of the world have all been, uh, in some cases, adding smaller format stores and trying to accommodate the, the needs and desires of us, the consumer. From CNN, tourists who are visiting the southern Spanish city of Seville may soon have to pay a fee to explore the wide, ornate Plaza de España Square. It's part of a plan to control tourist overload in a public open space. The mayor writing on social media, we are planning to close the Plaza de España and charge tourists to finance its conservation and ensure its safety. And he included a video showing missing tiles, damaged facades, and street vendors occupying alcoves and stairs. With more than 3 million tourists a year and a population of 700,000, Seville is the third most visited city in Spain, which in turn is one of the world's most visited countries, with tourism representing 13% of its GDP. Yeah, you might recognize the uh, Plaza de España. I think the Spanish call it Sevilla. Sevilla, Jill. Do I have that better? Is that better than pistachio? It is. It is. <laughs> they do pronounce it Sevilla. I just felt kind of like an imposter calling it Sevilla. I hear you. Then we got to call like Paris, Paris. <laughs> exactly. Like, Where it, does it end? It's a slippery slope. It's a slippery <laughs> slope to try to be authentic to all the pronunciations. Anyway, you might recognize this plaza. It was used in Lawrence of Arabia. It was used in a Star Wars Attack of the Clones. So it has been used. It's this iconic place. And by the way, Sevilla is not alone here uh, in trying to charge and dealing with an overwhelming number of tourists, taking Instagram photos. Venice in uh, Italy. Venezia is introducing a trial (laughs) fee in April (laughs) to limit the number of uh, day trippers there. But you see this in Thailand. You see this in Bali. You see this in Santorini. These cities that are just overwhelmed by tourists. So They're trying to figure out ways to uh, preserve, in some cases, create exact limits like you know, this many people can come in, or in this case, try to incentivize you or disincentivize you to come in if they're they're going to charge you. So a tourism tax of sorts here. So let's see how it works out. But you know, these are iconic destinations. And as much as we all want to take a picture in front of various places, you know, you, you, you want to be able to preserve these places as well. And finally, from the Associated Press, MLB's new uniform reveal has not gone very well. And now some of the rampant criticism has moved below the belt. I see what you did there. (laughs) Major League (laughs) Baseball Players Association confirming on Thursday that the organization is relaying concerns from players to MLB about the new pants which apparently are somewhat (laughs) see-through. The complaints first reported by ESPN are part of a broader scorn for the new uniforms, which are designed by Nike and manufactured by fanatics. (laughs) Jill, people may have already heard about this. Uh, John Oliver, Jimmy Fallon, uh, and others have been mocking this, obviously, obvious reasons. Actually, going back to our last story, uh, I see London, I see France, dot, 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 uh, baseball players. So a lot of comments out there, a lot of quotes. A Philly shortstop uh, said this week, I know everyone hates them. We all liked what we had. We understand business, but I think everyone wanted to keep it the same way with some tweaks there. The MLB officials say that the new uniforms improve mobility by providing 25% more stretch and will also dry 28% faster. Very specific number there. Uh, The lettering, the sleeve emblems, the numbering are all less bulky in an attempt to make the uniforms more breathable and more comfortable. Clearly, Jill, they're more breathable based on (laughs) what we're able to see. (laughs) 
and Moshe, a lot of people also uh, making the Seinfeld reference, George with his uniforms for the Yankees, and then <laughs> they shrunk. So I've got two days in a row of Seinfeld references here on the podcast. All right, we'll mark you down accordingly, Jill. Two days in, <laughs> two references. Let's see if she can make it all week, folks. So we'll see what comes to these MLB uniforms. But uh, it's an amusing side story to the beginning of the baseball season here. I think viewership will definitely be up. <laughs> the NFL had Taylor <laughs> Swift. The MLB has C3 uniforms. This is their play to get the ladies to watch baseball. Yeah, a Taylor Swift can only date one athlete <laughs> exactly. at a time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, time for On This Day in History. We begin at Cambridge University in 1953. An announcement that they determined the double helix of DNA, uh, the molecule containing human genes, the work of the molecular biologist at Cambridge was aided significantly by the work of one DNA researcher, a woman named Rosalind Franklin, though she was not included in the original announcement, nor did she get a Nobel Prize for it. But here on the Mo News podcast, we will honor her. All right, fast forward to 1993 on this day in history. You may have watched, there's been a lot of documentaries about it of late on Waco, but on this day, there was a gun battle that erupted at the religious compound in Waco, Texas. That's where the ATF tried to arrest Branch Davidian leader David Koresh on weapons charges. Four agents and uh, six Davidians, members of his cult, were killed as a 51-day standoff would ensue. Another big moment in the 90s, on this day in 1996, Princess Di agreed to divorce Prince Charles. Their 15-year marriage officially ended in August of that year. And on this day in 2013, Pope Benedict XVI became the first pope in 600 years to resign as opposed to dying as Pope. Uh, so he effectively became Pope Emeritus, allowing uh, the following month for Pope Francis. And so the two of them in this very unique arrangement we hadn't seen in centuries lived near each other side by side until 2022 when Pope Emeritus, Pope Benedict, died. All right, and we end here as we do with a bit of pop culture and history. We begin in 1970. A Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel reached number one on the Billboard charts 54 years ago today. That album, Jill, Bridge Over Troubled Water, also gave us Cecilia and... As I mentioned at the top, the boxer. La, 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 la. Mosh, it is an album that certainly stands the test of time. But unfortunately, Simon and Garfunkel did not. They split up right after this and apparently had real beef. Yeah, so they grow up in New York, right? They meet each other in Queens in school. Uh, we're in a uh, school production together of Alice in Wonderland, apparently. They smoke their first cigarette together. They decide to sing as a duo. Uh, and of course, make you know some really iconic hits of the 60s there, had a shared sense of music, etc. And then things would fall apart in their relationship. I mean, we've seen lots of bands break apart. Mo money, mo problems, Mosh. Yeah, so they have like the soundtrack of The Graduate in 67 and a bunch of major hits. But then, you know, you start to see the cracks there. And of course, Paul Simon would go on to a, a pretty incredible solo career there. You could say less so for Garfunkel. But they still had issues uh, decades later. But we here on the podcast can remember the music, the great music they made together, Jill. All right, fast forward to the 80s here. A big moment in TV history. 106 million people watched the final episode of the TV series MASH, if you recognize that theme song. One of the uh, most watched events in television history. And Jill, we'll stick with the 80s here on this final item, 38 years ago today. If you 
Pretty in Pink, starring Molly Ringwald, John Cryer, Andrew McCarthy, premiered in theaters. Mosh, uh, that is a John Hughes film, right? It is a John Hughes film, Jill, one of his iconic 80s films there. Apparently they tested for an audience a ducky and Andy getting together and it didn't, they didn't like the uh, test audience didn't like it. So they decided to go with a different ending. I could see that. I, I understand <laughs> why that wouldn't necessarily work. I feel like they'd also have to give him a, a different name in order for them to end up together. Yeah. You can't end up with <laughs> ducky in the end. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. And make sure to listen to an additional interview I did on the Rebooting Podcast. And we got a lot coming to you on the premium feed. We got some extra interviews coming starting this week. So make sure to join mo.news slash premium to support this account, support what we're doing here, all the free services, as well as get access to the members-only Instagram and members-only podcast. All right. Bye, everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.